scriptures are given to us to challenge us, and not just to challenge us to go, hmm, that's deep, but to challenge us to actually go, hmm, that's deep, now I should do something about it. Like, that's the point of what the scriptures should lead us into. And so part of the purpose that God gives us in the scriptures is so that we can ask this question. In light of reading or hearing this, how then should I live? In light of reading or hearing this, how then should I live? And so, in fact, uh, at the Ridge here, what we do is at the end of uh, messages, we typically say, hey, here's some next steps that you should consider taking. Or maybe you should consider what your next step is. And the reason why we roll those things out to you is because the scriptures lead us to next steps. And it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been with him for 50 years, if you're just sort of kicking the tires and testing the thing out, or if you're new to the faith. It doesn't matter. Like Somewhere in between, like the scriptures should always lead us to a next step. I believe that there's a next step for us to take all the time. All the time. Because when we read this, again, it should challenge us and ask us to make the question, in light of reading or hearing this, how then should I live my life? And so the crazy thing is, is like the answer to that question is not as complicated as what we've probably made it out to be. In fact, when you read the scriptures, God actually just gives us the answer to that. How then should I live my life? It's on these pages. It's in these words. It's, it's right here in front of us. And so it's not as difficult as what we made it out to be. And so when we read the scriptures, we have a choice to make. We either do to the best of our ability, try to follow the commands and the leadings of the scriptures, or we rebel against it. It's one or the other. We either do the best that we can to try to follow it, listen, learn from it, grow from it, or we just outright rebel against it. That. And so the problem for a lot of us is just that. It's rebellion. It's not that we don't know what to do or how to live our lives by following these examples and teachings. It's that we choose not to. And so for some of us, some of us, it's just outright rebellion. It's like we, we read the scriptures and we look at it at times and we just say, you know what? That, that, that's not for me. That's not for me. Or we read something and we, and we like to think that, that we're the exception to the rule, right? It's like, oh, that's for everybody else, just not me. Right? That, that, that one does not apply, apply to me. You know, somewhere in our minds we put ourselves in a parenthesis there. And, but when we do that, when we do that, the problem with that is that that is rebellion. That is rebellion. And the difference is then our response. It's our response. Do we acknowledge our rebellion? Or do we act like it doesn't exist? And so we have a choice to make. We either acknowledge our rebellion or we act like it doesn't exist. And so last week in 1 John uh, chapter 1, John actually put it this way. He says, if we don't acknowledge this rebellion, then we are liars and God is too. That's what John would say in chapter 1. He says, if we don't acknowledge our rebellion, then we're liars because we are deceiving ourselves. And if we are deceiving ourselves, if, we're, if that's us, then we're also saying that God is a liar too. Because he says, if we say that we are without sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. And if we say we have no sin, then God is a liar. And so what is it that, that it is that makes God a liar? Well, the reason why we would say that if we say that, then God is a liar is because God has told every single one of us that we're sinners. 
that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner, that even as saved by grace people walking with Jesus, we are still sinners. The difference is that we've been saved by grace through faith in, in Jesus. But it still makes us sinners. And so for us to look at that and to see what it is that God says, like Paul says in Romans chapter 3, right? He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we choose to look at that and say, for all have sinned, except for me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory except for me. I'm good. Like, I'm there. Like, if we say that, then what we say is we say, God, you're a liar because I know better than you. And so John, as we talked about last week, he said, if we do this, then we're in rebellion. We're in rebellion. See, I think that's one thing that we can all agree upon is the fact that, that that none of us are perfect, right? Like, I don't think any of us would, would dare look around the room and, and, and say, you know what, everybody in here, except for me, I'm good, right? Like, everybody else is imperfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You see, the only people that say that are psychopaths who start world wars. I mean, that's, and I don't know, I don't know if that's you or not. I guess we'll find out. But I don't think it's any of you. Right, and so like the, so, the only people that that claim perfection is either God or people who think they're God, and you're not God. And so we can all agree upon that. None of us are perfect, and because none of us are perfect, we're all broken and flawed. Therefore, that makes us sinners because we fall short of perfection, and so. John would tell us in, in the first chapter here, he said, if we deny that fact, then we're in rebellion and we are deceived, we are liars, and then therefore we, we are calling God a liar himself as well. But if we acknowledge this fact that we are rebellious and sinners, John says that God is faithful and just. Listen to what he says in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, if we confess our sins, and therefore if we acknowledge our sins, if we say that we are sinners, and we say, here are my sins, and we lay our sins out before the Lord, if we confess our sins, it says that he is faithful and just. That means that God is true to his word. That means that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. That God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when the scripture challenges us to think about how we live and challenges us to change, alter or form our lives around it, then we either choose to be obedient to it or not. We either choose to be obedient to it or not. Um, we don't typically like the thought of obedience though, do we? Like that's not something we love to talk about. It's not something that we love to, uh, to discuss and, and to, to get our heads around. But here's, here's the truth, and here's, here's what's really great about obedience. Because a lot of times when we think about obedience, especially just for ourselves, we think about obedience in terms uh, that really make us think that we're being restricted. It's like we think about obedience, we say obedience is me being restricted. I can't live my life the way that I want to do. There's no freedom in the way or in what I want to choose to do. And so we think of obedience in terms of restriction. But if we really think about it, and I hope, my hope and prayer is that what we'll see today is that obedience actually brings with it immense freedom. Obedience brings with it immense freedom. Uh, immense freedom. So let me, let me unpack this uh, for, us, for a second because... Um, if you think about the if you think about discipline itself, right? If you think about di discipline, uh, 
And think about the disciplines that you have in your own life and the reasons for them. And I hope, hopefully you have a few disciplines in your own life, right? Uh, then hopefully you'll be able to see this. And so think about it like this, like a, like a physical discipline. Uh, now, I realize this is going to be a pretty dicey question for those of you here in the 11 o'clock service, but I'll ask it anyway. It was easy for the 9 o'clock service because it made sense, but the 11 o'clock service, I don't know, let me ask you anyway, though. Uh, how many of you get up early? <laughs> All right. There's a lot less hands in the 11 o'clock service. That's why we have an 11 o'clock service. You're welcome. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, so how many of us? How many of us? I didn't say enjoy getting up early. How many of us? We just get up early. Like you, you, you get up early. Okay, raise your hands. There you go. All right, be proud. All right, cool, cool. So, like getting up early, like actually getting up early in the morning is a discipline. It, it's it's a discipline to get up early. Like there is a thing about getting up early that just there's there's a part of you that it feels wrong to get up early, doesn't it? Like, because some of you get up at an obscene hour, okay? And I'll just be honest, like, you get up way too early. Like, if you get up before 4 a.m., there's something wrong with you, okay? <laughs> Unless you have to be at work at 4, then we get, you know, or 5 or something. But anyway, but like, if you just like, I just love getting up at 4 a.m. You're weird. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. Well, you said it, not me. All right, so, anyway, off the rails here. Like there's a thing that just feels that just that just feels wrong about getting up early, but but you do it because you're disciplined. You discipline yourself to do it. Now, the opposite of that is that getting up early for some of you, there is a thing. Come on now, you know what I'm saying? Because this should be everybody in the room. There's a thing that feels right about sleeping in. Amen. Amen. All right, yeah, there you go. Like some of the rest of y'all, like now we're talking, we're cooking now. And so like, there's a thing that just feels right about sleeping. Now, and I don't mean like sleeping in, like you know, till 12 o'clock or something like that. But I mean, like, like just hitting snooze, you know, ten times, right? Like, you just want to hit snooze, like, you know, ten times on that, on your phone or alarm clock, whatever it is that you use. And there's a thing that feels right about that. But here's the thing, like, and this is the difference between, like, what I'm talking about here, like, a discipline and a obedience. Here's the thing, is that with discipline, discipline and obedience, there is, there's the thing that feels right. But then there is the thing that is best. There is a thing that feels right, but discipline is choosing what is best. Oh, what feels right. And so for those of you that, that get up early, like you know this, that, that getting up early brings with it some tremendous freedom. Right? That, that discipline of, of, of getting up early brings with it some, some great freedom. And, and so, like, uh, there's been a lot of studies on people who uh, choose to, to get up early and set themselves up for, for this type of, of discipline. And there's a multitude of benefits for that. Like, people who get up early, they, they tend to be better students. Uh, so kids who, who get up a little early every morning and sort of work their way into the day, they tend to be better students. College students who get up early, I know that's like an oxymoron, but college students who get up early, is the, they're better students. People that get up early, they're, they're usually healthier, they're more productive, they're mentally healthy, and on and on and on and on we go. But it's a discipline, and that obedience brings with it this tremendous freedom. And not restriction. Not restriction. So let's look at this together. We're going to look at the way that John sort of shows us the freedom that comes with being obedient to the commands and the, and the call of God. So let's look at this together. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. It says, My little children... 
Now, John, when he says that word, it kind of sounds weird, my little children, that phrase there. John, you've got to remember, John is an old man at this point. Like, he's, he is old, he's getting to the end of his day, and, and so he's like Grandpa John, right? And so he's just, he's writing these to these new young believers, and he's, he's calling them his children, as if, you know, like you're sitting at the feet of Grandpa, and John is, is saying this. So he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, we talked about what it means uh, for Jesus to be our advocate and propitiation last week. We'll uh, unpack that again here in just a moment. But he says that he is the propitiation for our sins, or he is the substitute and uh, one who absorbs our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, when John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he's essentially just saying, I'm writing this to you because I want to show you that there is a better way to live. That's what he's saying. And so he says, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, listen, there is a way to live your life. There is a way of being obedient to God. There is a way of listening to his voice and doing the best of your flawed and broken ability to do what he says. There is a way to do that. And if we will do that, if we will seek out to live our lives in such a way, there is a better way to live. It's better. Not easy, but better. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to, to turn there. It would be good for you maybe to look it up a little later. But Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives this uh, parable. And, and he's talking about uh, the, the easy road and, and the hard road. And in the parable, he, he says this. He says that the, uh, the way to life, good, abundant life, is a narrow gate. And following through that gate is what will give us this life. It says, so the hard way is the narrow way. It's, it, it's going to be difficult. It's not always going to be easy, but it's better. And it may not always feel right, but it's best. And so there's a better way, and it's through the, the narrow gate, the, the way that's a little harder, the way that's a little more difficult, the way that is disciplined. And then he contrasts that by saying, and there's an easy way too. And if you want to choose the easy way, that's a wide road, and it leads to destruction. And that leads to destruction. You see, moral obedience, it's a little different from physical obedience. Like we can, physical obedience is, is, is something that, that most of us can do. Right, like, like we can we can teach our kids. We can teach our kids about you know at very early ages about physical disciplines, can't we? Because at like two, three years old, like we can tell our kids, it's like, hey, when you finish that sippy cup, take it to the sink. Drop that joker off. Don't let it fall behind my seat in the car because when it does, three days later, it stinks. Like, now we got some problems, right? So, like, parents, you know, like, that's a discipline we're going to teach our kids, like, as early as possible. Amen? And so we're going to do this. So we can teach our kids, like, physical dis discipline, but moral discipline, moral obedience is a little bit different, and 
it's much more difficult. And here's why it's much more difficult. And it's really, a, a lot of this really kind of depends on, on how old you are. And so if you are like a, like a generationally, like a, like a baby boomer or older, like moral obedience is going to be a little bit easier for you to understand and get your head around. And the reason for that is, is because you were just taught differently. Your parents taught you differently. They probably took you to church most of the time. They probably tried to teach you uh, some morals. They probably tried to teach you some things that were uh, life building and, and, and different things like that. So you may have grown up in or around the church and different things like that. And so you have sort of this moral compass and this moral ground to build things on. But as generations get younger, generation uh, generation X, for example, millennials, Generation Z, that's like the, the youngest generation right now, on and on and on, like the younger that generations get, it gets harder and harder and harder to teach moral obedience. And the reason why is this, is because the younger that generations get, the less, um, well, truth becomes subjective. Truth becomes subjective. Here's what I mean by that, is that... Uh, and I would even say, like, for me and, and, and younger, right, that, that it, it gets more and more difficult because truth becomes subjective because this is what people will say. And this is what is happening currently in our culture. And it's been happening for a long time. It's just becoming way more prominent. Is that truth being subjective says this. That's true for me. And it doesn't matter if it's true for you, but it's true for me. Or it doesn't matter what your truth is. Your truth is not my truth. I choose my truth. You don't tell me what's true. That's subjective truth. And so for older generations, it was much easier for older generations to be able to take the Bible. And even for some of you, you may be younger, but, and you may do this, but, but it's becoming more and more difficult that older generations were able to take the Scripture and say, this is truth, and this is the standard. This is where we start from. Amen. Whereas... Culture currently, and will continue to move in this post-Christian culture, is to say, no, 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 truth is whatever I make that truth out to be. You, you can't tell me what truth is, I make my truth. And if it's true for me, it's true for me. It doesn't have to be true for you. Leave my truth alone, I'll pick it. Right? And so, moral obedience is becoming harder and harder and harder to try to define See, we're not really obedient until we think that the idea of being obedient is a lousy idea. But we do it anyway because we know it's the best choice. We're not choosing what feels right. We're choosing what is best. And so this is what, this is what John is, is trying to convey to us here in these, these verses. Look at verse 5. I'm going to skip around to a couple of these, but verse 5 in chapter 2, he says this. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And so whoever keeps his word, the love of God is perfected. And then in verse 6, he says, whoever says he abides in him, meaning whoever, um, whoever is obedient to Jesus, that's what he's saying. Whoever says that he is being obedient to Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, he's saying we live our lives in the light of the example of Jesus, living out and bending our will and choices of living to the best of our flawed ability to the ways of Jesus. To the ways of Jesus. And then, in fact, in verse 3, verse 3, listen to what he says here in verse 3. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his 
commandments. So again, this is, John says, you want to know how you know Jesus? You want to know how like, you are in Him? You want to know how you have a deepening relationship with Him? Again, it's not rocket science. He, he does not make this difficult. He doesn't make it a mystery for us. He says, you want to know how you can know that you know? You're trying to keep His commandments. You're trying to live your life in the way that Jesus lived out His life. And again, this isn't a matter of perfection. It's a matter of intent of the heart. Because again, we're not going to get it right. We're not always going to be perfect with it. We're not always going to knock it out of the park every single time. We are going to consistently fall short. God is not seeking our perfection. He's after our hearts. And no matter how hard we try, we're going to come up short. That's why in verse 2, he says that, in verse 1 and verse 2, he says that he is our advocate and he is our propitiation. See, Jesus being our propitiation, we, we talked about this in length last week, but essentially what Jesus as our propitiation, that's not a word that we use often, right? And I don't think anybody ever had that conversation with anybody this week at the water cooler. Hey, what's going on? Let me talk to you about propitiation, right? Like that, that didn't happen. But what it means is it means that Jesus Christ on the cross, well, let me back up, God's wrath, God hates sin. God hates sin. We are sinners. God hates sin. He has anger that is built toward and pointed at sin. But we are sinners. Is God angry with us? No, God is not angry with us. And the reason why God is not angry with us is because Jesus was our propitiation. He was the substitute of the one who absorbed the wrath of God, pointed toward sin, because he took our sin, all sin of the world, and he put it on himself and became the substitute and the one who absorbed the wrath of God on the cross to save us. And that's good news. And then as our advocate, and here, here's the beauty of him being our advocate, is that he is pleading our case before God. Not pleading our case in such a way to say, hey, let me tell you how good this person is. Like, let, let's, let's look at the rap sheet here. Look at how good they did here. I know they messed up here. They did pretty good here. And like, look at this. Like, they, they do a 20 spot in the offering. I mean, they're, they're, doing, they're getting better. They're getting better. That's not him. That's not him being our advocate. Him being our advocate is going, no, 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 no. You see, I know they're a sinner, and I know they're jacked up, and I know they're messed up, but I paid for that one. It's covered. It's covered. And that's God being, or Jesus being our advocate before the Father. And so when we don't get it right, when we're not knocking it out of the park, when, when we're not feeling that we're uh, choosing what is best, that we're choosing over what just feels right, over what is best, when we're not being obedient, Jesus is our propitiation and our advocate. So the whole point, John will say, is that we are obedient, that our obedience, it brings about this tremendous freedom and obedience because our obedience leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Obedience itself is not the end. Like obedience, it, obedience by itself is not the point. It's not the end. It's the means to an end. And that end is a deeper relationship with Jesus. Let me show you how this works in... Um, Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, 
Um, okay, let me back up just a little bit further. There's a guy named Moses, right? And Moses, uh, Moses was a man who God called and, and came to and said, Hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man in the entire world. I want you to go to him. I want you to tell him to let the people of Israel go. They were being enslaved by, by the Egyptians. And he said, So I want you to go to him, and I'm going to, I'm going to do this through you. You see, it wasn't that Moses brought them out of slavery. It was God working through Moses. And so God took a, 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 you know, the, the plagues and he did all of these miracles and things like that. Eventually, it softened and broke the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh let the people of, of Israel go. Moses led them out of slavery, of slavery, led them into the wilderness, which would lead them to eventual freedom. And so in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 20 is when they get the Ten Commandments, okay? In Exodus 19, right before the Ten Commandments are given to them, right before God says, here are the ways and here is how I want you to be obedient to me, God says this to the people of Israel. He says this. He says, hey, I want you to remember what I did for you. I want you to think back. I want you to think about how I rescued you. I want you to think about how I saved you. I want you to think about what I did for you. And he's setting them up. He's setting them up. He, and this is what he says to him. He says, I want you to see how I rescued you. I want you to remember what I have done for you. This is what I've done for you. I saved you. I rescued you. And because you are my people, and if you will obey me, you will be my treasured possession. Now think about the order of that because this is so critical. See, God saves them and rescues them from slavery, and then he asks for their obedience. You see, way too often we get that backwards, and we put God in, in, in a wrong light. And way too often we look at God like this. We, we think, okay, God, God will do this for me if I will do this. God will be good to me. God will... Bless me. God will save or God will do this. God will do this. And so, but he'll only do it if I do this. But notice what, notice the order of what God said. He said, no, 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 no. I rescued you. I saved you. I brought you into freedom. And so out of, out of that, out of what I've done for you, be obedient to me. Be obedient to me. You see, and so it's not that... If we obey, we're accepted. It's that we're accepted. Period. And out of that acceptance should drive our obedience and our discipline toward the commands and, and, the, and the will of God. See, our response is what John says here in verse 6. Our response to that, he says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That we'll walk or live our lives in the light of the way that Jesus lived his life. So then how do we, how do we know that this is how we're living our lives? How do we, how do we know that? How do we know that we're, we're tracking on that? Well, John really gives us the answer to that as well. Again, it's not a mystery. He's not hiding it from us. God's not going to say something to us and be like, all right, now, you go, go figure it out. Good luck. That's not what he does. He basically has three questions. He says that we can ask ourselves, am I keeping his commands? And so how do we know that we're walking in the way that Jesus walked? How do we know that we're living in the light of that? How, how we're tracking in that? We ask ourselves this question. Am I keeping his commands? Am I obeying his words? And am I living my life in the light of the way that Jesus lived his? Now, 
this is three different ways of really asking the same thing. And that same thing being, am I living my life under the obedience of what the Bible says? Am I living my life under the obedience of what the Bible says? Now here's the problem with that. It's not really the problem with that, but the problem that we try to find with that is this. Is that if you and I, if we don't actually believe the words of the scripture, if we don't actually believe the words of the Bible are true, if we don't actually believe that these are the words of Jesus and the words of God himself that he inspired to give through people that we have on these pages, like if we don't believe that those are true and that God's desire is for us to, to live our lives in light of this, then you will have a continual deepening, harder and harder problem having a deeper relationship with Jesus. See, part of the reason John wrote this letter to these people was to, to help give them assurance. Which is good for us because it helps to give us assurance. Because don't you want to know that you know that you know that, 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 that you're saved? That Jesus saved you and rescued you? Like We want to know that, don't we? It's good for us to know that. It's good for us to understand that. And I know that that's something that, that many of us struggle with at times. It's like, how do, I, how, do I know that, how do I know that Jesus loves me? How do I know that Jesus has saved me? How, how do I even know that I'm a Christian? See, assurance of knowing, assurance of knowing that when you are sure that you know, it creates this deepening relationship with Jesus. See, so John said, so, so you can be sure. And here's how you can be sure. It's the result of your relation, is the result, you ask yourself this question, is the result of your relationship changing? Is the result of your relationship with Jesus, is it changing? Now notice that I didn't say the result of your relationship with Jesus has changed you. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes you don't change immediately. Sometimes there's not like a light, you know, light and night difference between the way that you were yesterday before you gave your life to Jesus to the way that you are today. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's a just a, a nasty, gnarly journey that you're on. It's a process of change. It's not always an immediate change. Now, there are some of you, and there are people that you know that have experienced some kind of immediate change. Like once they gave their life to Jesus, like... Boom, like they were just completely different. Everything changed in their life, and that's a good story. And you know what? We love clapping for that. We love cheering those things. We love throwing those up on the screen and hearing about those. And those are great, and those are good. Maybe that's your story, but for a majority of believers, the story is like this. I gave my life to Jesus. I woke up the next day, and nothing was different. Maybe it felt a little different, a little bit different, not a whole lot different. But you know what? Still cussed like a sailor. Still do. Uh, you know, still had some of the, the same struggles, still still did this to you. And so it was like this journey. But if they say, but you know what? That was that was five years ago, that was three years ago, that was fifteen years ago, that was twenty years ago, whatever it was, and then you say, But you know what? Like now my desires are changing, like my desires are different. Like I actually I want to be obedient to the Lord now. I can see myself changing. I'm not the same person that I was 10, 15 years ago. And it's not just because I'm getting older. It's because I, actually, I love Jesus because I know that he loves me. So you ask yourself that question. Is the result of a relationship with Jesus, is it changing you in some way? 
See, Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but he says that, that we are being transformed into Christ's likeness. That, that, that our transformation is transforming in, us into the likeness of Jesus. And so what does that mean exactly? Well, the writers of Hebrews, he'll say this in Hebrews chapter 1, he'll say that, uh, that Jesus, like, what, what does that look like for us? And so we look at the life of Jesus, and so what did Jesus do? And in Hebrews 1.19 it says that Jesus, he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And so, really just a few more questions to ask yourself. Like, how, how do you know you're changing? Ask yourself these questions. Do you, do you see yourself loving other people? Like, do you see yourself loving other people a little more? Are you becoming less selfish? Like is, is the, the result of your relationship with Jesus, is it, is it making you a less selfish kind of person? Are you, are you becoming more fair? Are you becoming uh, a person who seeks out equality and justice? Not revenge. There's a difference. But justice. Isn't, isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that how he lived his life? Do you have an increasingly soft heart? softer heart for other people and, and, and their situations. In other words, are you, are you finding yourself that you're becoming a little more compassionate? And maybe you're still not the most compassionate person in the world, but are you a little more compassionate? And so if you don't know if these things are becoming true in you, if you don't know if you can see these things in yourself, you know what the best way to do to find out if that's true? Go ask somebody that knows you. They'll tell you. Ask them that question. Do you see me becoming more compassionate? Like, and I know, I get it. You know, the guy, you know, two cubicles down from you, he's still a jerk, but maybe you love him a little more now, right? I mean, like, maybe that's, that's changing a little bit. Maybe you caught yourself praying for him one day or, you know, whatever. You know, your neighbor who mows their yard in the Speedo, maybe it's not as offensive to you anymore as it used to be. I don't know. <laughs> that was me. I, I, it happened to be once, okay? So uh, it's, it's seared into my mind. That's my, it's seared into my mind. All right, but... Like, I mean, so you ask yourself that question, am I becoming more compassionate toward people? And if the answer to that question is yes, if you can point to those things and say yes, then here's, Jesus is changing. It's not that you're becoming a better person, it's because your relationship with Jesus is changing you. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And then last but not least, I would say this. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? Not just the consequences of sin, but do you hate sin? And do you want to kill it? There's a Puritan writer by the name of John Owen, and he, uh, a long, long time ago, he wrote this, this book, if you will. It's a short book, but it's called The Mortification of Sin. And I remember reading it um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but I remember reading it for the first time, and and it bothered me. Like at first, actually, there was a couple of things in it that kind of bothered me because it was so like it was it was brutal. Honestly, it was brutal. And uh, but the more the more that I've come to know Jesus and, and see that He loves righteousness and hates wickedness, and the more that I read the Scripture, I can start to see what John Owen was trying to say in this. Because there's a line in that book that he says this. He says that we must be killing sin, or it will be killing us. 
And so the name of the book is called The Mortification of Sin. And so what he's saying is he's saying that, that God hates sin. And so we ha- it needs to be murdered. Do we hate sin? Because he hates sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but do we hate sin? You see, we kill the sin in our lives through repentance. We're turning away from it and we're turning to Jesus. And the, the more that we do that, we talked about this in Link last week, but the more that we do that, the more that it changes us. And so how does all of this begin to, to play itself out? Like as we begin to change and we begin to start to, to love people more, well, John actually begins to talk about that in the next couple of verses, in the next chapter, how that begins to, to work itself out and, and, and begin to become something more real to us. And so next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. We're going to talk about how we, how we love people around us, how the, the gospel drives us and changes us to love those around us. That's next week. Let's pray. Father God, we God, we thank you so much for your word. God, the, the challenge that it gives us every time we open it up. God, the challenge that it gives us to, to live it out. God, the challenge that it, that it draws us to 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 build our lives around it, God, to, to have it change us from the inside out. God, starting with our hearts and the intent of our hearts. God, would you help us see, would you help us understand, Lord, that, that what you're truly after is our hearts. It's not that we just simply change our behavior, God that we allow you to change our hearts. So Father, give us, give us a hunger and a desire for obedience and disciplines to your commands and to your call for us to, to live our lives in the way that you lived yours. God, help us learn from you. Help us see more clearly what it is that you're calling each and every one of us to in our lives. Father, give us the courage to lay down and to kill the things within us, God, through what you have already done for us on the cross, to kill the sin within us, God, that keeps us from being obedient to you. God, give us the courage to lay that down at the foot of the cross right now, to turn away from it and to turn to you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Will you stand to your feet and sing and worship with us and let this be a time of reflection on what it is that we've talked about this morning and what God is speaking to you about. Maybe you need to take time to continue to to pray through something, to take a next step because the the word has challenged you. you. You are the only one who knows what that next step is. I just pray that something down. Maybe it's maybe it's something of obedience and discipline that God is calling you to that you know that you need to step into. And so maybe you need to take the time to pray for the courage and the faith to step into that. But as we do so, let's, let's sing, let's pray, let's contemplate these things. And let's come together to take communion, which is a perfect
perfect and beautiful example of exactly what we've been talking about here today. That Jesus' obedience to God in laying down his life as a sacrifice to give us salvation is laying right here in these plates. His broken body and his blood. Let's sing. Let's pray.